if you have your Bibles this morning, the Word of God, would you open them up to 1 Peter chapter 3? 1 Peter chapter 3. Our passage this morning is 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 17 through 22. Last week we were just back a little bit. I'm going to just rewind a little bit to get a little bit of a running start into what is admittedly a challenging passage that we're going to look at this morning. Do you have it open there in front of you this morning? wasn't really a rhetorical question. Do you have it open there in front of you this morning? Good. Glad you're out there. It's important enough you need to see this for yourself. I'm going to start in verse, um, in verse 15. We looked at this last week. Peter writes, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Then verse 17 says, For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, To those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. This is God's word and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. So let me just at the very outset warn you this morning that what we're looking at here is considered by many scholars to be the most interpretively challenging passage of scripture in the New Testament. Kind of encouraging, isn't it? You're kind of thinking and we were this close to going straight to breakfast, but here we are. The most interpretively challenging section of verses in the New Testament. It is riddled with question marks and head scratchers and disagreements between preeminent theologians. And it's all because it comes with a number of unavoidable questions. And when I'm preaching, I really don't like doing this, but on a day like this, there is no choice. Because if we don't at least put these unavoidable questions on the table, I'll be answering emails all week long. So if for no other reason, we just have to address some of the big unanswered questions that are raised in this passage. We're not going to settle anything once for all here. I just need to say that. They've been working on this for centuries, and greater theological minds than us are still going at it, but at least we can put it on the table and say, here's what these challenging questions are. Question number one, who are the imprisoned spirits that Christ went and made proclamation to. Did you see that there in the passage? In verse 18, it says, Christ was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And after being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. Now, there's a whole series of interpretive questions you got to work through on that, like, who are the imprisoned spirits? When did Christ go to them? Where did he go to them? And what did he proclaim to them when he got there? 
In short, very short, there are three major views of what this means. Number one, this is the pre-incarnate Christ speaking through the mouth of Noah in the days he was building the ark. Number two, Christ did this as a victory proclamation as he was ascending to heaven following his resurrection. Number three, and I've shared this view with you before, Christ, during the three days his body was in the tomb, in the spirit, he descended into the place of the dead where the generations of believing but still waiting saints were held captive to death. And he proclaimed to them in that time that the work was finished, that the victory had been won over the curse of sin um, on the cross. Now, those are the three major options. Most everyone falls into one of those camps. We're not going to solve this this morning. Greater theological minds than you and I combined have already wrestled this. I just want you to be aware it's a problem. We know it. Question number two. How did Noah get into this passage? Did you see that in verse 19? He went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. What is so specific about Noah to this passage? Now, Peter, you should know, has a special interest in Noah, because not only here, but when he gets to his second epistle, again, he comes back to the life and the ministry of Noah as an example for these believers that are living in Asia Minor. Now, certainly, there are natural parallels from the days of Noah to their days. Noah and his family were living as a godly minority, Surrounded by a hostile, unbelieving culture, just like Peter's readers were, perhaps like you may feel you are beginning to be. Noah was criticized for his faith. Despite this, Noah lived as a witness for his faith, and Noah experienced God's faithfulness in saving him. So certainly, there are some obvious connections. You might be interested to know that Noah was especially famous in that day, in that part of the world. Did you know that? Now, of course, it was a pagan culture. They knew very little about the Bible, but they did know about Noah. Very interesting. We know from historical sources that the people living in Asia Minor were very familiar and fond of these great flood stories, and in particular, they knew the story of Noah as had been told of the Bible. In fact, an amazing set of coins have been discovered from Asia Minor. These coins were minted in the reigns of five Roman emperors, and the coins had the Roman emperor on one side, and guess who was on the other side? Noah was on these Roman coins there in Asia Minor in that region right around the same time. The only Old Testament account that has ever been found in the world on an ancient coin, and they were discovered right in the region where Peter was writing to and right around the time he was writing. So Noah is certainly a timeless encouragement to anyone who find themselves living for God, but at odds with their surrounding culture. But it's also interesting to think that another reason why Peter may have brought Noah into the story is because he was the one character, perhaps the only character, that everyone, even with a lack of Bible background, would have been familiar with. Third, really complicated, unavoidable question. Does baptism really save us? Well, in some sense, I think the answer has to be yes, because it says so. I mean, chapter 3, verse 21 says, this water symbolizes baptism. That now saves you also. 
That's what it says. And you can check around on your U version if you want. Go from, you're not going to find another translation that's going to make it easier on you because that's actually just what it says. It says, baptism saves you. So in some sense, this has to be an accurate statement. Now, we do not believe in baptismal regeneration. What we mean by that, um, what we mean by that is that it is not necessary for anyone to be baptized to go to heaven. We don't believe that. We believe that salvation is by the grace of God alone, through our faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone. God's grace plus our faith plus nothing else is what brings us into a personal, life-changing, eternal, secure relationship with God. We do not believe in baptismal regeneration. But for that matter, we do not believe in decisional regeneration either. We do not believe that there is any outward, specific decision anyone must go through that is necessary to be saved. Something like what? For instance, to pray a sinner's prayer. It is not necessary to pray a sinner's prayer. But sometimes we get that in our head. I mean, of course, if you're going to get saved, you would pray a prayer. It would start something like, uh, God, I'm a sinner and I know you love me or something. Which is very good, by the way. It's just not necessary. You do not have to pray a prayer if you think you've got a verse in the Bible that says, so come show it to me. I'm still looking for it. You don't have to pray a prayer to be saved. You don't have to raise your hand to be saved. You don't have to walk down an aisle for an altar call. You don't have to fill out a response card. You don't have to sit on an anxious bench. You don't have to throw your pine cone into the fire. Whatever it is, there is no action you have to take on the outside to be saved. None of it. Because we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone, full stop. Now, having said that, we're not suggesting that any of those things, in any way, are inherently wrong. Oh, to the contrary, they are tremendously good things. All of them, I'm sure, used of God. In fact, many of us, at least as we tell the story would mark the exact point of our conversion to a moment in time in which we outwardly responded to the call of Jesus. Many of us sitting right here would tell our story that way. Because we remember when we walked that aisle on that Easter Sunday when we raised our hand, when someone led us in a prayer, we were baptized. We were not saved operationally by any of those things, but experientially for many of us, that was how we expressed our first defining step in Jesus. And so these things are together forever fused in our mind. And listen to the way we tell the stories. It may be 50 years later, we still tell it that way. I remember the night I got saved. It was 50 years ago. I was at a Billy Graham crusade. And he said in that North Carolina drawl, that if there was anyone who wanted to come meet Jesus, meet me down at the front. And I walked the aisle that night and I was saved. Or they tell the story, I still can remember my friend after basketball practice one day said, you could pray a simple prayer. And he helped me pray this simple prayer. It was in the back of a booklet. And I was saved that very day. They say it was Easter Sunday and the preacher said, if you want to meet Jesus today, we we have tanks that are ready. You can be baptized right now. And I was, and I was miraculously, wonderfully in that moment saved. We tell the story that way. No one was saved by walking an aisle into a Billy Graham crusade. No one was saved by praying a prayer that was printed in the back of a booklet. No one was saved by getting in water. They were all saved by faith 
as these things were happening. So in that sense, yes, baptism saves you. Not the outward mechanism of passing through water somehow, but the inward faith that it is displaying. Which, by the way, look at it in your Bible, 1 Peter 3.21. I think that's what Peter is saying. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body. So it's not about the water action. Yes, if you go through the water, you will come out cleaner than you went in, unless you're like the 28th person in the baptism line, in which case that might not hold true. But yes, generally you're going to come out cleaner than you went in, but that's not the point. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh. It's not water action, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. By the way, we would be remiss if we did not point out that the same Peter who's writing this is the same Peter who preached on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2. And when the people cried out, brothers, what should we do? Peter did not respond. He did not respond back. Repent and let each of you repeat after me this simple prayer from the heart. He did not say that. He said, repent and each of you be baptized. And yes, that baptism saved them. Not the water in the tank or however they did it or the cleansing they experienced, but the sincere faith that it was expressing on that day because it is faith alone, by God's grace alone, through the finished work of Christ alone that saves us. Nothing more, nothing less. Now perhaps running through these questions has been helpful for you. Perhaps this has been tedious for you. But if we're going to study verse by verse, these are questions that we must answer that are inevitable because inquiring minds want to know and because theological minds like to argue with each other. There are things about these verses that we just don't fully understand if we're honest about it. I mean, we can be dogmatic. That won't make us any more right. It'll just make us more dogmatic. There are things about these verses we don't fully understand. But it reminds me of one of my all-time favorite quotes from the great American humorist and common sense philosopher Mark Twain. He said this. He said, most people are bothered by the parts of the Bible they cannot understand. But as for me, I've noticed the parts that bother me most are those that I do understand. Isn't that true? Many times people are most troubled by the parts of Scripture that they don't understand, when in fact we should be most troubled by those we do understand, because that's the parts that relate most to us. This is a perfect passage where we're given a choice of chasing down parts that we don't understand or seeking to apply parts that we do understand. And in this case, the parts that we do understand are far more important to our lives than the parts we don't. Because while those may be unavoidable questions, they are not, to the passage, the most relevant questions. Now, I know that Peter thought he was being helpful. He thought he was illustrating and enlightening, and when we get to heaven, we'll kind of chat with him about it. It's like it actually didn't help. It left us scratching our heads. But the point is, we know why he was making these references. All of this was to explain and substantiate the everyday principle that he made in verse 17. Look in your Bible at verse 17. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. That is the premise of the passage. 
And all that other stuff is to enlighten and substantiate that principle. Everything else is just explaining how could this be true? How is it better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil? How is that true? If it is God's will that it is better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Now, maybe this isn't one of those graduate-level theological concepts that I need to learn some fancy new terms for so I can be impressive next time I go to my Sunday school class, but this is an everyday concept that definitely needs some explaining for my life. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Because the truth is, and I bet you're the same, I tend to see it the exact opposite of that. So we had a little um, drama, excitement, in our home uh, a few weeks ago. Um, I kind of got an urgent message while I was here at work from Kim. So I called her up and she said, I I don't know what to do. Uh, The puppies, we have two little white West Highland Terriers, those dogs. We have two of those. And she said, they're locked in the car. I said, well, what happened? She said, well, I I was bringing them back from the groomers. I pulled into the garage. Our our neighbor, Mary Kay, was in the driveway. So I just went for just a minute to go over and say hi. I I come back a minute later. And Max, he's he's the youngest of the puppies. And, And in all fairness to Max, he's got ADHD. So he's got issues. But anyway, she said, I came back and he jumped up on on the armrest and he hit the automatic locks. And, and he locked the car with my keys in. They're, they're inside. And, and she said, I, I don't know what to do. And I said, where's the car? She said, well, it's in the garage, so it's in the shade. But it's hot in there. I said, okay, um, y- you stay with them. I'll, I'll get there just as quick as I can. But I said, you keep an eye on them. And, and if you got to, you just grab the shovel and you just, you know, knock the window out. Do what you got to do. She said, I'll, I'll watch them. So, so she's there and, like, she's trying to, you know, you know talk to him. Like, come on, Max, hit it again. He's like, <sighs> You know, like, come on, you can do it. Come on, buddy. And anyway, so she's there. In the meantime, I'm driving home. I'm a little panicked. I, I'm, I'm, so, I'm, uh, so I'm making my way north on, on uh, the 17. And uh, so I'm, I'm speeding somewhat. And, and I'm thinking to myself as I'm speeding somewhat, like, oh man, if I go past a patrol officer, I am so getting a ticket right now. I mean, you know, and I'm, and I'm like, and I don't want to get a ticket, but I'm thinking, like, I'm going to be toast, you know, if this is, and, I, and I'm thinking, well, okay, if it happens, it happens, and I'll explain, sorry, and I'll get a ticket. My wife wouldn't get a ticket. I'll get this. She would, she'd cry, and she'd tell a story, and they'd give her a warning and a tissue, but I'd get the ticket. So I, I was totally prepared for that. This happens, I'll, you know, I'll get, I'll get, the, I hope I don't. But if I do, I got this coming to me, and I'll say I had, I had no choice. So, um, but, and I would have accepted that. But if, on the other hand, if I had been driving religiously at 65 miles an hour and putting on my blinker 100 feet in advance of changing lanes and everything, and then I got pulled over and got a ticket, now I would have been mad at that. See, because if, if I was clearly exceeding the speed limit, somewhat, and, and I got a ticket, I'd have that coming. That, that would be fair, but it would be worse if I was doing everything right, and then I got a ticket. See, I, I always, I think of it the exact opposite. By the way, the puppies were fine. They, they were fine. I got, you know, I got home, I come screeching around the corner and, you know, hit the, you know, hit the unlocks and, and the dogs come out, you know, and Max is like, hey, dad, you're home early. That's how he talks, um, you know. Gidget and I just took a sauna. <laughs> so they're fine. They were totally fine. But it was, it was stressful in the moment. But I would have thought, if I got pulled over for doing wrong, that seems reasonable. If I got pulled over for doing right, 
Now that would tick me off. But if I'm reading this right, it's the exact flip. How is it better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good? That's better than for doing evil. That's the relevant question that we're supposed to be asking in this passage. That's what he's trying to answer. The simple answer is this. Because in this, you are following in the pathway of Jesus. Verse 17, for it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Verse 18, for because seeing that, here's your answer. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He brought us safely home to the Father. He has been raised up to the right hand of God. He is Lord over all angels and authorities and powers. And all of this began because he was willing to suffer for doing nothing but that which was right. And if God should so will that we would experience the same in our lives, we should be willing to receive this as an honor because God powerfully works all things together for good, even unfair suffering to powerfully accomplish his purposes. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil because Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. This is the part that matters most right here. Now, if you have never in your life fully gotten a hold of what God did for you through Jesus Christ, then you need to listen to this part here really closely. Because you may never again in your life want to hear about baptismal regeneration or pre-incarnational ministry or Noahic foreshadowing. Your life may be complete if you never hear those words again. But I promise you this, if you don't understand what it's saying about Jesus and believe it, however you experience that outwardly, this will change your life, this will change your eternity, and you will be saved by what Peter's saying right here. Verse 18 says, Christ suffered for our sins. Jesus Christ suffered on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. When he was up there on the cross, that was not merely a demonstration of divine love. It was not primarily a profound miscarriage of justice. It was a willing sacrifice of the Son long before promised by the Father to make sacrifice for sins. And the fact is, you have sinned. Just like I have, just like everyone has. You have sinned. And the bad news is that what you have earned for that, the wages of that is death. However, the good news of the Bible is, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Verse 18 says Christ suffered once for sins. What this means is, is that this is a finished work. Jesus Christ didn't put the down payment down on our sins. He didn't pay most of us, and if most of it, and if we'll put in some religious sweat equity, we can finish it off. His death on the cross was a once for all perfect, sufficient, finished sacrifice. There is nothing more ever on your part or anyone's part to add to that. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 26 says, But now once at the consummation of the ages, Christ has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once 
to bear the sins of many will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. To those who will receive it, they will be saved by God's grace alone, through their faith alone, in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. Nothing more, nothing less. It's finished. For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. In this sacrifice on the cross, Jesus Christ served as our substitute. Back in chapter 2, verse 24, Peter wrote, He himself, Jesus, carried our sins in his body on the cross. This is why, by the way, it was so important that Jesus Christ was perfect, that he committed no sin, it was nothing but good in his life, because this qualified him to pay the price on our behalf, to be the Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. Because he was perfect, he could be our substitute, he could stand in our place. You had to be qualified. I am not qualified. I I have sinned. I cannot serve as your substitute. Even if I saw you and I felt pity on you, mercy on you, I couldn't say, I'll tell you what, I'll stand in your place and I'll take it on your behalf. You know why? Because I'm already spoken for. Because I've already earned the wages of sin. Only Jesus was perfect in every regard. Therefore, he was available to offer himself up and he did as our substitute. Only Jesus was qualified and willing For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous, that's him, for the unrighteous, that's us, to bring you to God. The point of this incredible sacrifice and suffering was to make it possible for you and I to experience reconciliation with the God who not only made us, but he made us so that we would be connected in constant relationship with himself. The tragedy of sin, the greatest tragedy of sin, is that it has cut us off, it has destroyed the very thing for which we were created in the first place, to be connected with God. Jesus Christ substitutes sacrifice on the cross, that finished work set all of that right. The point of Jesus' suffering was to bring us back home again. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. The greatest tragedy of sin is being cut off from the God and the life that we were designed for. The tragedy of sin is made right in the miracle of the cross. We experience reconciliation to be made right in relationship again. Verse 18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous, that is Jesus, for the unrighteous, us, To bring you to God, he was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Why was God waiting patiently? Well, Because judgment was coming. But because God is patient, he waited to give people time to repent to believe, to be saved. 
So in those days of Noah that everyone knew about, Noah kept on building and Noah kept on preaching. But make no mistake, judgment was coming. And just like in the days of Noah, judgment is coming. And I'm well aware that our society is far too forward-thinking and inclusively minded to accept that this could possibly be true. But it is. Just like in the days of Noah. Judgment is coming. It would be biblical malpractice not to say this truth. A day of judgment is coming, and if you think that you can be good enough, it is utter foolishness. If you think that you can be religious enough, it is an utter lie. Judgment on sin is coming. Complete destruction is coming. And to not sound the alarm on this would be eternally cruel. And to those who in the end will not turn from their sin and turn to Jesus, judgment is coming. Just like in the days of Noah. And to those who will trust in God's provision to graciously save them, just like in the days of Noah, he will be faithful to his word. They will be saved from an otherwise certain judgment. In the days of Noah, it says in verse 18, while the ark was being built, in it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through the water. This is what the Bible calls a remnant. And though they may be relatively few in number, God will be faithful by his grace to preserve for himself a remnant. This is a constant biblical principle from beginning to end. Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who find it. But the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. I wish that I could tell you that in the end, everyone will find their way in. I wish I could tell you that. I wish I could tell you that in the end, most will find their way in, but it would fly in the face of what the Bible actually says. God will be faithful. God will be gracious. And by his grace, he will save. But just like in the days of Noah, it will be relatively few. It's what is called a remnant. In verse 20, it says, In it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through the water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but a pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and power in submission to him. The path for Jesus that began in unjust suffering has now landed in unparalleled cosmic glory. So chapter 4 and verse 1 finishes, and I realize that I'm stealing some of Pastor Shane's material from next week, but it's okay. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves with the same attitude. Here's what the passage is about. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 17. It is better... If it is God's will to suffer for doing good, then for doing evil. And when we say, how can that possibly be right? That doesn't even make sense. Verse 18 says, for because Christ also suffered for our sins. And he did all of this. He took our place. He carried our sins. He finished the work all so that we could come safely home to God where he is now seated in glory and honor. Therefore, chapter 4 and verse 1, since Christ suffered, Arm yourselves also. Get your head in that same frame of mind also. 
just like Jesus. The question today is how in the world could we possibly say it is better to suffer for doing good than for evil? The answer is because if this should be your lot, in this you are following in the pathway of Jesus. And not only did he suffer for doing good, but God used it for good and his own glory and for our salvation, people just like you and me. So the good news is there is nothing you can do so bad that it will keep you out of heaven. The bad news is there is nothing you can do so good that it will get you into heaven. The best news is that in the end, it's not about anything you do, but it's about what Jesus has already done. Jesus suffered for our sins. Jesus took our place on the cross. And on that cross, once for all, he finished the work so that he could bring us safely home to the Father. And if you will only believe, if you will only take God at his word, he will be faithful to do that for what you which he has said he will do. He will save you. Now, I understand that if you're here this morning and you do not believe that you need saving, the judgment is not coming and you don't need grace, I have wasted your time. And I sincerely apologize for that. This message was utterly irrelevant to you. But if you are here this morning and you know you need a Savior because you have sinned, And because you do need to be forgiven and you do need mercy and you do need a God who is gracious and faithful to his word, then what I have told you this morning is the most important message in your life. You will never hear anything more important than what you have said today. I have begun to believe that perhaps we have provoked attention today because we talked about Jesus with such utter clarity. And I think we can come in here and we can talk about good deeds and we can talk about societal change and we can talk about a lot of things, but if we talk too clearly about Jesus Christ, that attracts attention. You know why? Because that's the most important message in the world. If you are here today, if you are listening to me, if you're within the sound of my voice and you know you need a Savior, I don't care how you express it on the outside. It could be, it could be an inexpressible groan in your heart. It could be a whispered prayer. It could be bad baptism. I don't care what it looks like, but I would urge you in this moment to put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ because he carried our sins to the cross once for all, finished work, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us safely, and that includes you, home to God. Full stop. And even if you don't know anything else, you didn't even know there was a Noah on the back of a coin somewhere, it doesn't matter. If you know what I just told you and you put your faith in it, right now, you will be saved. Now and forever. Let's take just a moment and let's pray together. And if you don't need to pray to be saved, then pray for someone who does. They may be with us. They may not be here. You pray for yourself or you pray for someone else that these words would be true. Heavenly Father, I know that you love me and that you created me and that you sent your son Jesus and that he suffered and died on the cross for me and that that work is finished and if I will just trust in that work, 
with nothing else, I will be saved. And so I take you at your word that through the work of Jesus, I will safely be brought to you, the God I was created to know. I don't know how you would say it, but in your own heart, if you believe something like that, then God will be faithful to his word to do that which he said he will do, which is through the work of Jesus, bring you safely home to God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. And we realize that he is the center of our stories and he is the center of our life and he is the center of our salvation. We thank you for his work on the cross. We glorify him as he is seated at the right hand of God on high in in dominance, in preeminence over all angels and authorities and, and, and worldly powers. He is enthroned in glory. And so we praise him as a as a God and Savior who is worthy of that. God, I pray that you would center our lives on those things that matter most. There's so many things we do not know, and yet we confess that we are educated beyond our obedience. And most of us here, if we never learned one new thing, we would have enough to work on to obey for the rest of our lives. So would you cause us this day to respond to Jesus and those parts that we do understand. And all God's people said,